Hey, welcome to the Chess Experience. On this show, it's all about helping adult improvers. I want to make learning chess easier for you to navigate, and I also want you to have a more fun experience along the way. I'm your host, Daniel Lona, a fellow chess amateur. Let's get to it. This show is sponsored by Chess.com, the world's largest chess community. And there's a really exciting and new release from Chess.com that I've enjoyed using. It's called Classroom. This feature allows you to easily go over a game live with a friend or a club member that you just played. And you can do so interactively on the board with both of you on video talking to each other. It's also a great way to have a lesson between a student and a coach. And you can check that out on chess.com slash classroom. Welcome to this week's episode. I have a very cool guest for you. If in recent years you read any news articles on chess.com, then you've probably seen his name as the author of a lot of event coverage. Peter Dohurst is the director of news and events for chess.com, and he's been one of the world's leading chess journalists for nearly two decades. Peter hails from the Netherlands, and he's quite a good player himself. He has a peak FIDE rating of 2292 and has two IM norms. Let me offer up a little bit of background on Peter's career. In 2007, he launched his company Chess Vibes, which for a long time was one of the world's biggest online news sites for chess. It covered top events, offered in-depth journalism, and even had some print magazines that helped you improve your game. Six years later, in 2013, Peter sold Chess Vibes to Chess.com and became their director of content, working with them ever since. Peter has had an incredible career. He's met many of the top players, he's attended tons of top-level events, and he's even done in-depth reporting on subjects like Bide's past financial difficulties. In this interview, we chat about his competitive chess career, how he launched one of the world's leading chess news sites, books he recommends for chess improvement, and what player from before his time he would interview if he could have had the chance. Here's my interview with Peter. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, Peter. Uh, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hi. Yeah, thanks. I'm doing great. That's fantastic. How are you? Uh, <laughs> I'm doing well. Thank you very much. I'm excited to chat with you. Yeah, so I've uh, you know observed uh, some of your work uh, even before this interview uh, for chess.com, and I always enjoyed reading your articles and things that you published. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as I got ready for this interview, I realized you did way more than I even realized just from reading those articles. Uh, so yeah, you've had uh, quite an impressive chess journalism career. And I'm excited to chat about that with you. In addition to your uh, journalism career, uh, you're a pretty darn good chess player yourself. Um, well, for a chess journalist, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, let's talk about that part of your, your chess life first, which is your actual chess journey of competing and learning. So from what I can tell, as a kid, your passion for chess grew over several years. Your father taught you to play as a young child, but it seems between the ages of 10 to 14 in that range is when your passion for the game really grew uh, and became significant. So can you describe that period of your chess life? Well, I would say the passion started a little bit later, but uh, yeah, uh, let's say when I was around 12, uh, 10, uh, 11, 12, I used to play in uh, in the breaks of uh, of school, of uh, primary school. Uh, my teacher was uh, was was interested in chess, and uh, we played uh, every now and then. And uh, then I, I guess I left it alone uh, after I left uh, school and went to uh, high school. As we call it, the secondary school in the uh, Netherlands. But um, I think around the time when I was like 13, 14, uh, I would say um, I had a, a very good friend and I used to play tennis with him on the street and football and all kinds of things. And one day he, um, I joined him uh, to visit his uncle somewhere else in the city. And um, yeah, and that uncle uh, started to to play chess with us or, or explain things about chess because he was a very uh, enthusiastic player. And um, he showed, showed some books and he started telling about Bobby Fischer, uh, his big uh, hero. And uh, it was all very fascinating to me. And uh, and then we started to play, play uh, games among ourselves. And I started to uh, to go to the local library to see if there are any books. And uh, yeah, and I got really uh, excited about it. And I 
started to get more and more books, started to buy some here and there. And, uh, yeah. And if, in fact, in, in fact, uh, at that time, uh, there were, uh, matches going on. Uh, uh, I started to learn about the Gary Kasparov, Anatoly Karpov matches and, uh, Jan Timman played the candidates final uh, against uh, Karpov in 1989 in Malaysia. And uh, we were inspired. So we started to play like matches, uh, me and my, my neighbor uh, friend. Uh, so we would play a match uh, of like 24 games, actually. That could last the whole uh, Christmas holiday uh, where we would just play. Uh, well, I don't think it was 24 games, but we would play one game uh, at his place, one game at my place. And uh, we would just go on and on. And then, uh, yeah, it, it went from there. So that's how it all started for me. <laughs> that's fantastic. I love that you created your own match with, yeah. your, with your friend. Were these classical games that you were playing with him? Well, I don't know the time control. Maybe we took an hour each or something, but uh, it was definitely not very fast. But all, I, don't wow. think, I don't think we were playing for, uh, for hours and hours, but uh, it was uh, somewhere in the middle, I think. Yeah. That's really cool. So you were inspired by the world championship yeah. match? Is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. I love that. The same was when I played my very first tournament in 1991, the Open Dutch Championship. Uh, when I arrived at the, it is, it, uh, the look, accommodation was a camping site, and I, I actually immediately recognized two of uh, club members because I, by then I was I had joined the club, and they were they were playing blitz, and I I, I walked over, I said hi, and uh, I noticed that both with white and with black they were playing the same opening and it was the Zaitsev variation of the Rui Lopez and that was exactly the line that, that uh, Kasparov had won a few beautiful games with against Karpov uh, later, on, later on I found out that Karpov also played it against Timon but, uh, and, I, and I was so fascinated also by this opening variation and about the fact that these guys knew all this theory that that, that, uh, that was an, another world that was opening for me which was like the study of openings uh, that was the first uh, time i uh, i noticed that you could do that and you could sort of emulate top players and and uh, yeah stand on their shoulders uh, in uh, in long blitz matches as well so that was also a lot of fun yeah well i'm i've always been a fan of studying openings myself so i enjoy hearing that uh, that op- you know that that seeing those openings played was something else that that got you excited about the game too was opening study yeah um uh, just quickly on that uh, that match between you and your friend, I can't help but wonder who won the match. <laughs> uh, I think I did actually. Yeah, I was I was uh, slightly better, I would say, but uh, it was a close one. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. So you know, over the years, as you competed and improved as a player, you you rose to the level of FIDE master and later earned almost two no- almost. Oh. Yeah. Oh, let me just uh, correct that quickly. Then you didn't get the FM title. No, no, because I was uh, sadly my peak was at uh, twenty two ninety two, so uh, I was very close. Yeah, uh, which is very odd for someone who has uh, two IM norms, of course. But somehow uh, that happened to me, and uh, I, I think I was just a player that, when I was in good shape, I could uh, peak quite high, and I could uh, I could beat uh, IMs. Uh, I beat one grandmaster uh, also in my life, and I drew a few. Uh, but I could also play, uh, the next tournament could be, uh, quite a bad one. Uh, so on average, I guess I was like, I don't know. I, for, I think for over a decade, I was around 2250. And I think that was probably my, uh, my average and normal uh, level. But, uh, yeah, when I was playing really well, I could play at, uh, well, I guess 2400 performance. Yeah, that is interesting with two IM norms. So did you, I mean, it's, you still reach a pretty high level by by mm-hmm. uh, any club level player's standards. Did you have any specific ambitions in chess along the way as a player? Uh, or was it simply just to improve as much as possible and see how far you could go? Yeah, it was, it was mostly uh, the latter, of course, uh, and uh, not really taking it too seriously. I never... Uh, I mean, the thing is, I always look back and I think, okay, maybe I could have, I could have made FM or maybe even a bit more if I would, for example, would have taken off one year after my studies and fully focused on chess for like 12 months in a row. Maybe something would have happened, something nice, but I never did that. I always, I went from studying to, to work and, uh, and I always had friends and, and, and girlfriends and I, 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 I had other hobbies. Uh, so, uh, in that sense, 
I was, of course, like all amateurs, hoping to get better. But and I was playing a lot of tournaments, like like a couple of tournaments a year, summer tournaments, uh, usually uh, in Spain and Greece, very combining it with uh, with the beach and all that. Uh, also, yeah, joining with friends, that was a great time. But but in that sense, uh, I didn't do more than that. So so I was just hoping that I would slowly get better a bit better anyway. And then yeah, in 2004, this first norm came completely out of the blue you know uh before the ninth round i was uh going to play against uh, the dutch uh i am uh daniel stelwagen who would who would turn gm himself uh, a month later in his very next tournament he would score his third uh, grandmaster norm he was already rated above 2500 and the arbiter came to me and he said uh, oh by the way if you win uh, you have a norm uh, and like excuse me okay <laughs> and i uh i start playing and i played sicilian and i thought okay i have nothing to lose this guy's 2500 i'm gonna probably gonna lose in uh, in 25 moves or whatever and and yeah and somehow i i uh, i managed to get a very nice position with a queen sacri- uh, exchange sacrifice and then played another few nice moves and, and before i knew it i was actually winning this game and yeah that was an amazing uh, amazing feeling and and then uh, the next time it happened was actually uh, we fast forward uh, we can go back to the time yeah, before but I was already a journalist for like uh, seven years or something and uh, yeah and then I played this open tournament in Liechtenstein and uh, a bit similar I didn't expect it at all and out of the blue uh, I, pl- I scored another one so <laughs> yeah <laughs> I see it as I, I never I never really tried and i never really thought i could become an i am because i'm simply not stable enough but i see this two two very nice uh like medals you know that you can hang on your wall and uh, and think back uh, as uh, as nice memories (laughs) (laughs) so that's interesting you said that you had already been a journalist for seven years when you got your second norm so in that i don't know whatever three to seven year period before you got your second norm were you regularly improving, uh, working on improving, you know, your skills, your abilities? Not anymore, actually. I, I did a lot, uh, let's say, between the day I started at Chess Club or even before that. And that was in September 1990. When I was uh, 14, I would turn 15 a month later. So I actually started serious chess when I was uh, like 15 years old. And uh, sort of seven for 17 years after, or maybe 60, yeah, I started writing... Uh, in 2006 it, it all became very serious in 2007 and that was basically the time when i sort of stopped putting time into my own chess i stopped uh, reading books which i always did and i i started playing less i did i stopped working on my opening repertoire and and actually to be honest my results uh, very slowly but surely my results started to go down um but I kept playing. Uh, I play for my team uh, in the Dutch league, and every, uh, not so many tournaments, but sometimes. And uh, but I think I know why I played so well in 2014, which is that um, I had just moved to Chess.com uh, uh, like almost a year before, and I had like a full-time uh, uh, agreement with them, and and i i went to this chess tournament and for the first time in 7 years i had a real holiday because when you have your, before that i was running my own company i was running chessvibes.com and when you run your own company there you never have a day of uh, never never have a, have a day of free time to be honest uh, even when you don't need to write uh, or film or visit a tournament you're still uh doing all kinds of things uh, you have a lot of emails to answer i was Doing, uh, I was also having uh, magazines. I was running uh, PDF magazines with with subscribers who always contacted me and qu- asked me questions. So you, you there's always work, and you do you always do work even on a Saturday or a Sunday. And in this tournament in Liechtenstein, for the first time, I actually had a holiday where I could just focus on the on the tournament and nothing else. I, 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 if I wanted, I could I could just not open my inbox for 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 nine days. I think maybe I even did that. And it was in the beautiful surroundings in uh, in the mountains in Liechtenstein. Uh, it's like central uh, Europe. It's very close to Switzerland. And uh, there was a great group of friends. I, I was having the time, uh, well, not of my life, but uh, the time of, of my seven years uh, period. Let's put it that way. And and uh, yeah, and I think that really helped to to uh, remain in a good mood and to and to have a lot of energy and to uh, to play well and uh, to score well. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's really interesting how that that unfolded for you. Yeah. Um, as you probably know, Peter, this this show is aimed at adult improvers who are at the club level, and I try to talk about chess improvement as often as possible. Sometimes the show, an entire show, is dedicated to that. But even when just exploring guests' chess lives and chess journeys like yours, I always like to to discuss it a little bit. So, can you share like what factors do you feel had the most impact on your improvement as a chess player over the years? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well. The most important thing I think for everyone is uh, to just play a lot and spend a lot of time on the game. And it might not even matter too much uh, what you're doing as, as long as you really love it and you're passionate and you're, and, and, and that will help you solve puzzles and, and, uh, and just play a lot on at clubs. That's what I did. I played a lot of uh, tournaments. Uh, so. That is, I think, still the most important thing. But in my case, I think also what really helped, and I think it still helps uh, for uh, improving players, is if you actually like to read chess books. I mean, that is also one of the open secrets of uh, Magnus Carlsen himself, that he just loves to read books, chess books, and he uh, he has the gift of actually remembering a lot as well from uh, what he's reading. I hope, I wish I had his memory, but but still... I think uh, that uh, did a lot for me. And also what I noticed later on in years is that, the years that I think the the first five, six years of of uh, playing chess and, and looking into books, I think those that experience uh, stayed the long, that stays the longest with you. Everything else you learn after that and all the books you you read after that, they you, somehow you, you, you remember less of it and you uh, it's harder for you to, to actually added to your uh, arsenal of weapons i would say but i i know that over the rest of of my so-called career i still use sort of positional ideas or tactical tricks that i know that i learned in those first five years so i hope i'm not discouraging uh, f- uh, amateurs who are working on chess longer uh, because i'm sure <laughs> of course you can still do also on the latest and we could talk about it later and i managed to but it's funny for me and i think i think this is how it works um Anyway, um, yeah, I, I started digging uh, when I, I saw that you were going to ask me about this. And um, I actually just started typing a list of books books that I had a lot of big influence uh, on me. And uh, so I will quickly mention them because I think they're, uh, it's, it's nice to... Yeah, please, um, please do. So I, have, I, I divided them over openings, middle game and end game. Well, as far as openings are concerned... Well, Max Oewe, the Dutch world champion, he had a lot. He wrote a lot of books uh, as well. Uh, not everything was translated into English or other languages, but there was this series called Practical Chess Lessons. And in in the second uh, book, there were like, yeah, there were these opening sort of tricks. Um, for example, you have the Italian Four Knights. And I saw there for the first time that that when you actually put the four knights on the board and then there you put a bishop on uh, c4, that black actually has this trick with knight takes e4 and then d5. And uh, that's that's one of those early things I remember where you where you start to uh, play that kind of stuff and and your opponent has no idea what's going on and you you get this great center and you uh, you feel feel really really well about it. <laughs> I was always an e4 player. I'm still am. I used bits from a Raymond Keane book called An Opening Repertoire for the Attacking Player. But I don't know. I don't think it's a very good book, but I just remember that I, I used some of that stuff, like the Scotch Gambit, for example, uh, was nice for a while. Very influential was John Nunn for me. John Nunn's all kinds of books. Uh, for example, his Beating the Sicilian series in the 80s and 90s were were absolutely fantastic. Uh, I used his King's Indian books, but also Joe Gallagher started helping him at some point. So I was really, I'm also modeling my repertoire after after like Fischer and Kasparov, like so many amateurs have done, I think. After that, years later, uh, what was very famous in the early 2000s was the the publisher uh, Chess Stars openings by uh, Alexander Galifman. And I uh, I had all the books of the Vichy Anand repertoire. That's like seven books or something about one e four, and they were very good. And now these days, uh, uh, I'm also one of the people using Chessable uh, for um, also for one e four, also for Black. By the way, it's not a secret that I'm still 
I'm still playing Sicilian uh, Nidorf and, uh, and and mostly Grunfeld, so I'm heavily relying on Anish Giri and uh, Peter Svidler uh, in that respect in the recent mm. years. Nice. Um, yeah, for middle game, I have there's so many great books. Uh, very influential was not actually my 60 memorable games, although I did buy it later on. But I actually the first one I had about Fisher was simply the games of Robert James Fisher by Bob Wade and Kevin O'Connell. Because it just had all the all the games, and I think I, I went through almost all of them actually, which is like a bit over seven hundred. So, um, and these days, grandmasters have, have way more games, of course, in the database. Of course, Fisher actually has, has relatively few uh, of them, but still over seven hundred. Uh, I think I saw almost all of them. Of course, there were the the Mark Dvorgetsky books, um, Bronstein's uh, Zurich Fifty Three. Uh, Jermolinski's The Road to Chess Improvement. Well, in the early 2000s, I was also in a group of friends where we sort of discussed books a lot together and and studied, uh, bought them together and, and studied them sometimes together. And uh, in that period, we were having, having heavy discussions over email, for example, about uh, John Watson's Secrets of Modern Chess Strategy, where he compares modern modern players and modern strategy with what Nimsovich said and to what extent Nimsovich was wrong or right. And we also were big fans of Jonathan Rousen's uh, Chess for Zebras. Mm, yeah. And uh, in those days you also had uh, John Nunn's Secrets of Practical Chess. So those are all super good books from the time that I was studying uh, chess uh, a lot. That's fantastic. Yeah, and for, the, list. and for the end game, uh, well, I have uh, some of Auerbach's uh, books. Uh, of course, the classic Smyslov and Leuwenfisch on rook endings. Um, uh, obviously, Mark Dvoretsky's end game manual. And, uh, and what is also very good is uh, uh, Michal Shigashevsky's end game strategy. These are all super classics, and, uh, and I also love them. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thanks for sharing uh, the books that, that made a difference for you. Um, that's that's great. Yeah, let's shift to talking a bit about your chess journalism career, the beginnings of it. Can you just describe how that unfolded? Because I think it's an interesting interesting story how that came to be. Because it, I don't know, it didn't sound to me like it was very <laughs> premeditated or super planned the way it unfolded. It just it seemed exactly, to kind of yeah. happen naturally. I sort of rolled into it. Yeah, it's true. Actually, the group of friends I was mentioning, we were members of the Max Euer Chess Club in Amsterdam. Uh, so now, I guess now many of the listeners also know how to pronounce it. It's Euer. <laughs> and um, yeah, we uh, we actually had a sort of a digital club magazine, like an email. Uh, someone was uh, sending weekly email with the results of the club competition and as attachment uh, there were usually some games and these games would be would be annotated and i started to uh, if i played a nice game i would also annotate my annotate my game uh for for this magazine but we had a small group of like five or six people and we would actually share our annotations first among us before sending it to the to the editor of this magazine so we were really like perfectionists who first wanted to discuss uh, improvements and uh and only then uh, share it with the rest of the club, which is quite amazing if I look back at it. And at some point I thought, there is this new thing called bl uh, blog. You, uh, mm, I think right. bl blogger, uh, <laughs> blogger just started. It wasn't even bought by Google yet. And um, I thought, you know what? I'm starting a blog. I'm going to start a blog. I'm going to post my games over there. And that it's going to be a much more efficient way to talk about uh, the game I played, uh, people can leave comments in uh, under the game. They can play through the game, and uh, let's see. And well, this I did like one game, another game, another game, and and nobody was really uh, looking at it. And we just continued emailing about our uh, <laughs> about our games. <laughs> and then I played in the local Amsterdam Championship, and I finished that. Uh, and I and on Sunday evening, I thought, you know what, I'm gonna write like a report about this. I'm gonna write like my story about uh, playing in this championship and I took some photos and I, I actually made some kind of a tournament report about this and it got picked up. People liked it. Somehow it quickly turned into a blog where I was not writing about my own games anymore, 
which was fine. I was doing all kinds of stuff that I, I liked. I was writing, writing about what, hap what happened in the chess world in the Netherlands and internationally. And yeah, it somehow grew into a blog uh, that people really uh, enjoyed. And uh, I was only doing it for like two months, three months, when a friend of mine, uh, Manuel Weeks, who was going to be the team captain of uh, Australia in the Turin Olympiad in 2006, he said, uh, I know uh, you're riding and you're doing a lot of nice stuff. I've seen it. Uh, well, why don't you come to the Olympiad? I can arrange you a press uh, a press pass and you can walk everywhere and you can maybe interview some players. I love, I'm sure you're going to love it. That's amazing. Yeah, and I, I was like, wow, of course I will. And I took uh, one of my good friends, so we went, the two of us. And before I knew it, I was walking around in the playing hall and I I could actually walk to to like two meters, two and a half meters away from from the Russian team, you know, with, with, with giants like, like uh, Kramnik and, and Grishuk and Svidler. And I, I, I just couldn't believe what I was doing there. And, and Korchnoi was playing and, and all these famous grandmasters. And I was suddenly, yeah, it was the first time that I experienced this. And it was, of course, as a chess fan, uh, to be, uh, suddenly in the middle of everything is, uh, it's absolutely amazing. I also remember there was this very old man, uh, in a, he was sitting in a chair at the side of the, of the big hall. And I noticed he had this this ticket, this this pass uh, with with a cord around his neck uh, that shows uh, which access he he got uh, in the in the whole uh, venue. And I spotted that uh, well, one he was very old, and two he he had access to everything, like VIP, like uh, stage, like everything. So I may I, I connected the dots and I thought okay this must be Andor Lilienthal and of course he was and he was he wasn't like I don't know he was like ninety ninety seven or something I I think he lived a few more years he was absolute legend of course and he was also there yeah. so I'm super uh, yeah still super happy that I, I I didn't get to speak to him sadly but I uh, I saw him there yeah it was very nice yeah well it's amazing enough just to be in such close proximity to these players when they're at the olympiad yes um did you get the opportunity to to have a conversation with anyone that that you know you were excited to speak to in in that year i don't think i was bold enough to actually do interviews already <laughs> <laughs> sure i was really just starting and i and i was just recording uh lots of video but video also just started i think in 2006 i'm not even sure if youtube already launched because I remember uploading video stuff to a website that was called blip, B -L -I -P .tv, which I think does not exist anymore. Um, and I, uh, I, anything that I was recording was appreciated a lot because the chess world only knew photos, basically. Nobody was doing video yet. So just to be close to to, to top grandmasters and see them moving and, and recording post-mortems where they may, analyzing the game afterwards. And, uh, that, that already was absolutely fascinating to watch in those years. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So when did all this become chess vibes? And can you talk a bit about the, the chess vibes stage of your career? Yeah. Well, that, that was a big step. Uh, January 1st, 2007, I, I actually got the URL Chess Vibes and I moved everything there. And I think already in October, I visited the, the Hoge Veen tournament in Holland, the one where always four, four top grandmasters play and there's also an open tournament. And Jeroen van den Berg was tournament director back then. Who He was also the director of Vikingsee. He still is. And I think there I heard about the fact that in Wagenzee they always have a grandmaster, one, one grandmaster per day would go into the press room and show his or her game with a demo board, with a big wooden demo board for the journalists. Um, and those were always very nice sessions. I heard about that and I, I asked uh, Jeroen, um, are you okay with me sitting there silently putting a camera on a, on a, a tripod, just record this and upload it so that the fans can also uh, enjoy these explanations. And he was like, yeah, sure, good idea. So that's what I did. I, read, I actually borrowed a camera in January 2007. I started recording these, these videos. I think those already went up to YouTube, but YouTube had a 10-minute uh, limit of video uh, <laughs> in those years. 
So some of those sessions, I had to upload three different videos. Uh, you can still find them if you, uh, they're, they're now uh, on the channel at some point, the Chess5 channel. At some point when I joined Chess.com, it was renamed and it's now the Chesscom Live channel. So I think if you go to the Chesscom Live channel on YouTube and you go, you scroll back all the way to the beginning, you will see, and it's fascinating. I can, I can encourage everyone to, just for fun, to do that because it's fascinating. You see a very young Anish Giri, very young Magnus Carlsen. You see Vichy, Kramnik, Topolov, just just going through their their best game of, uh, of that day, uh, basically. So that, And I remember I had like 1,000 visitors a day uh, before the tournament and during the tournament, uh, that rose to 15,000 visitors a day because suddenly Mark Crowder was linking to me and Chessbase was linking to me. And uh, yeah, so I got sort of a bit of fame uh, in that month. Yeah, I mean, I think and, uh, for yeah. those standards back then, those were really good numbers, right? I mean, early yeah. days of YouTube and, and chess wasn't as big then, I think, online. As yeah, I think so. so. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. So, yeah, of course, this was a success. And, uh, the very next thing I did uh, with my friend uh, Macaulay Peterson, who I also met in 2006 uh, in Hoogveen, uh, we went to a store uh, and uh, we bought a, a camera because Ma- Macaulay was going to go to the Linares 2007 Linares tournament. It was a month later. And uh, so we bought this camera and, and he immediately took it and he did some video stuff there, which was also uh, very well appreciated. Macaulay actually did a year, one year of film studies in Amsterdam, so that's why uh, he was uh, in the Netherlands and he knew a bit, uh, a lot more about film than I did. So, so that was nice. And from that moment uh, on, uh, both of us uh, did a lot of video, uh, and I, uh, together with him, I, uh, yeah, I had so many ex- great experiences. For example. Uh, Mexico 2007 was the first world championship, the one that was won by Vichy Anand. We were there the whole tournament. Our our flight was co-paid by both uh, 50% by ICC and 50% by New in Chess because they just loved what we were doing. And um, and that's where it all took off. And yeah, uh, yeah, it's great. Uh, there was those were great days, uh, early days of video and uh, yeah, chess on the internet and. Uh, going all over the place, all over the world uh, to tournaments. Uh, it was really nice. Yeah. So Chess Vibes, ultimately, it seemed like you had a few components to that company. Like you had your, I, th- I assume you still had a blog running for it um, and the videos. And then you even had a couple of uh, magazines as well. Yeah, right? exactly. As I mentioned earlier, they, those were, uh, I, I started uh an openings magazine, of course, <laughs> uh, <laughs> called Chess Vibes Openings. Um, I think I started it in 2009. And I uh, didn't do the writing for that. Actually, it was uh, done by two Dutch uh, IMs and uh, friends of mine, Marijn van Delft and Robert Riss. And they did it really did a, did a great job uh, for a couple of years. And like I think a year later or one and a half years later, we also added a second one, which was called Chess Vibes Training. And that was a bit bigger, and that was like tactics and middle game and some end game stuff. And uh, I actually had Anish doing uh, a column, and there was like there was four grandmasters who were alternating. Yeah, so you had an educational component to the company yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, was it fair to say that at its peak popularity, which was <laughs> it didn't take long, it seemed to to become very popular, um, that Chess Vibes was probably one of the leading chess journalist organizations, you know, chess journalism organizations um, uh, in the world at the time in terms of coverage for, for events and things like that. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. I, I think of chess base was in those years was, uh, was always a bit bigger, but I think I was definitely uh, the number two. We, we were, because I also had some other authors, uh, my friend, a good friend, Arna Moll, uh, for example, wrote a lot, a lot of great columns. I should mention him too. And, uh, and uh, yeah, we, I think we were clearly the number two. And to be honest, in some aspects, maybe there wasn't even uh, a rival because we were so independent that I, I also, uh, quite early on, I think I, I uh, tried to do some critical, uh, like like uh, uh, research journalism, uh, where I uh, cr- criticized, uh, for example, the, the International Chess Federation FIDE here and there when, when, I, when it was due. 
I had a very uh, important piece, for example, uh, at some point when FIDE was about to go bankrupt. And I, with the help of a very smart friend, we analyzed FIDE's finances and we saw all kinds of flaws. Uh, and we posted this big article about that. And I think, I, I don't think uh, other sites were doing that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I'm still, and that maybe that, that kind of thing, uh, I look back at with a bit of pride, you know, that I, uh, yeah, that I did that stuff also early on. Yeah, that's uh, that's incredible work. That's you know obviously goes. I mean, as important as it is to cover the chess events for for the chess world, uh, the tournaments that is and things like that. I mean, that's that's definitely um, a different type of <laughs> journalism. Yeah. one that definitely yeah. yields a, a lot of impact. Sort of now, maybe moving to the the second half of your chess journalism career. In 2013, Chess Vibes was sold to chess.com and you became part of their team uh, as director of content. Uh, that was your title at that point. Later, the title became director of news and events. I'm just curious like how you saw your career and your work change, if at all, much in what you did and what you contributed going from being the owner of Chess Vibes to the director of content for chess.com. Yeah, well, that didn't change that much, to be honest, in the early years uh, because... Uh, Danny and Eric uh, of chess.com, uh, Danny Wrench and uh, Eric Alabest, uh, they really gave me a lot of freedom. Even uh, in those days, uh, I was doing a lot of journalism uh, all together with Mike Klein also, who later on uh, moved to full-time working for Chess Kid as Fun Master Mike. But um, they they really let us uh, do uh almost anything we wanted and and that included uh, this type of journalism for uh, for quite a while and and we moved for example the magazines into a, a joint magazine that sadly didn't last too long on chess.com but we at least we tried to continue that as well and um, well at some point all the articles were also moved to to chess.com so you can actually find them now on, on our website also and uh, I I just continued uh, traveling uh, a lot. The biggest change for me, to be honest, was because the actual uh, live broadcasts of chess tournaments started to take off. Uh, Macaulay was kind of the first doing that for, for the, I remember, the London Chess Classic. That, that was a tournament that really was early with that kind of thing. But I I know that uh in i think 2014 Stuart conquest the uh, english uh, grandmaster who was working for the gibraltar tournament he asked me uh, and and my good friend leonard otis who, who was still in the chess world and also famous for being a very good photographer he asked us if we could cover the the gibraltar tournament with a live uh, broadcast and uh and we started uh, doing our research and we started buying some cameras and all and we did that, and we had a mixer, sound mixer, and we had some other equipment, and we went to Gibraltar, and we uh, we started producing uh, this uh, this show uh, with uh, commentators like Simon Williams and Jovenka Hauska, and uh, we also had Irina Crush, and later on Liz Betts did uh, something, I think. Uh, so that was the biggest change for me, that I started to get involved in, in doing live broadcasts, and of course, that is completely normal, and... and happening everywhere in the chess world and you could also say that maybe from there on uh, also the whole streaming revolution uh, happened but uh yeah i was actually kind of early uh, with with this kind of uh, work i'm not involved in it anymore but i it was also very exciting to uh, to start doing that and to try to improve every year and uh, with working with the new software that came out and uh yeah, I had some great times together with Leonard and uh, and some other people. And also we did a few tournaments in the Isle of Man, for example, where I have very good relationships with the organizer, who is uh, Alan Ormsby, who is a great guy. And yeah, we did so many good tournaments that uh, that was also very exciting. Yeah, and, that's it. Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, sure. So I guess uh, maybe I was moving a little bit from uh, writing a, a little bit less uh, to doing that kind of work as well but i continue to do a lot of writing yeah that's a great point about um that shift from video coverage to print coverage um over the years uh not just for you but you know for for i guess you could say chess journalism do you how do you feel about 
the place for like print coverage in this very video based world? <laughs> uh, does, is it still critical to have that print coverage for tournaments and, and things like that versus just having video commentary? Oh yeah, definitely. I, uh, for the, uh, only for the simple reason that there's still a lot of people who simply like to read. Uh, and that uh, I think will always be the case. So, uh, uh, and and video video is also uh, a bit faster and quicker and and in risk of being a bit more superficial. While for text, you tend to take a bit more time, and uh, and especially if there's not a big deadline on something, you 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 can do a lot of research, and uh, you can also do this uh, on video, of course. But I think text uh, definitely still has its place. Yeah, although. To be honest, if you ask me what is the most memorable thing that you ever did uh, in your career, then it it is actually a video. <laughs> <laughs> which video? Because we, yeah, well, I I always think about one moment, which is uh, which was in March 2014, uh, because I was working at the Reykjavik tournament with Leonard, doing the I think we we already doing the the broadcast there, and um, and then the news came that that Gary Kasparov was going to visit. I think it was maybe the first time Gary visited Iceland since in like in like a decade because he famously uh, played against Magnus in 2004. And the second thing was uh they were go- actually going to visit uh, Bobby Fischer's grave uh on on Bobby's birthday March 9. So I uh, I joined them and uh I filmed uh, Kasparov's arrival in the snow and he had a little speech uh, in the in the lo- in the church which is right next to the grave. And then uh, I asked him, uh, "Can we can we maybe do an interview?" And uh, and there, uh, yeah. So it was a historic moment because Kasparov and Fischer actually never met in real life. And uh, when he was at his grave, they were, in a way, they were only a few meters away from each other. And he gave a very touching uh, interview uh, where he uh, talked about Bobby's career and what he meant for the for the sport and the game of chess. And that video, yeah, it's also on YouTube. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's really uh, the, my proudest, uh, my proudest the moment. I think, yeah, yeah. I was uh, really excited to learn that that was that came from an interview that you did with him because I saw it um, for the first time a couple of years uh, prior to our interview right now, mm-hmm. and I was just blown away um, by the power of that interview. His eloquence, it was really amazing. And then it wasn't until I contacted you and started learning more about your body of work that 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 was yielded from your interview with him. Yeah, um, I think if I remember correctly, yeah. I actually decided to just cut out my questions. So yeah. just let him speak and 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 then I put some music under it and uh yeah, I think it it worked quite well. <laughs> oh, I'm glad to hear that that was your decision <laughs> to yeah. cut out your part. Yes. Uh, because yeah, you're right. There yeah, you were not um in that video. I don't hear your questions or yeah. uh, anything like that. But yeah, that was a really I mean that that seems like it's one for the history books mm-hmm. that what you videotaped then that day. Um it's really profound. So yeah, I, oh, just, I just hope YouTube.com will will stay online for a little more. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So um, maybe I'll ask this question now because it kind of flows from that. Aside from the Kasparov interview, do you have any other standout memories or stories um, that they just like to share? Or, um, bring up. Yeah, I had some some great things. Yeah, um, if we go a bit back. I, there was a. I remember there was a match uh, Gary and Anatoly Karpov played in Valencia in 2009. Uh, Gary had uh, came back. Uh, he had, he was retired already for four years, and um, he played like I think it was a rabbit and a blitz match with Karpov. So that and I went there, uh, and that was my first time as a journalist seeing Kasparov playing because he, of course, he stopped playing before I actually started uh, my my journalism career. So that was a very special moment. Uh, as a professional to actually see and and ask him some questions at a press conference that was very special uh, in terms of uh fun tournaments i mean as i said together with macaulay we also we did a lot of uh, we did we went to four of the la- the last four melody amber tournaments those were famous tournaments where top the absolute top players of the world uh, played rapid and also blindfold chess and uh it was organized by a, a Dutch billionaire, 
and uh, at the absolute highest standards uh, in fantastic five-star hotel and brilliant food and the players of course obviously were in a great mood also because it was it was not for a feeder rating so they could also uh, experiment with openings and uh yeah we we played football like table football uh, in the evenings uh, and and I there's some nice photo I I have for example with me uh, with 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 not only Magnus but also uh the late uh, Vugar Gashimov who uh, died way too young this Azerbaijani grandmaster who died at the age of 27 a few years later uh, he was he was a fantastic uh, person and a fantastic player but those tournaments were were absolutely amazing um yeah, well, being there in 2013 in Chennai, in India, when Magnus uh, grabbed the first uh, world title against Vichy was, uh, of course, historic. And uh, those are the moments where you're really happy that you're sort of present and like yeah. part, of, part of history, you know. Yeah, it's really yeah. in the room in that, in that moment when he... Yeah, uh, yeah, well, yeah. They were, uh, I, I don't know if I was in the playing hall, but uh, I was in the pre in the press. Maybe I was in the press room, but I've, I was definitely in the in the press conference uh, when he arrived, and everybody started uh, applauding and all that. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, well, the last the last one I can mention is an absolute thrilling moment when I it was also related to Gary. Actually, he was he was playing uh, blitz in the St. Louis Chess Club in 2017. Uh, I think it was a, maybe even the first time that he played one of those tournaments. So again, after a couple of years, uh, we saw him back at the, at the board, which is always thrilling. And um, he plays this first game in the Blitz against Karyakin, and uh, he has the white pieces. And I put my camera uh, like one meter away from the board just to record and record the whole Blitz game because we were just recording those Blitz games and, and putting them on the internet with commentary. And I, I'm standing there and they shake hands and I see E4, E5 and Gary plays F4. Gary, Gary plays the King's Gambit. And I knew that he never had played the King's Gambit in his life before. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know, I got like goosebumps because I was like, this is Gary, this is King's Gambit. And I'm like one meter away from them, you know, or one and a half. And I was, I'm looking yeah. at it and my camera is rolling. And that was just, that was one of those fantastic moments. Yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I imagine he hasn't played it much since then either. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Yeah, maybe so, one yeah. more time. I don't know. I, yeah, maybe, but yeah. Yeah. It was a draw, by the way. Yeah. Okay, well, that's impressive. Yeah. Um, so it just, uh, I guess, taking a, an overhead view of chess journalism as someone who's been in this field at such a high level for, for decades, do you have just any, any thoughts or observations on the current landscape of chess journalism? We talked a bit about how you've seen it change a bit from, you know, maybe shifting more towards video, mm -hmm. uh, things like that. Are there any trends that you find exciting or trends that, you know, maybe we should be concerned about anything along those lines? Yeah. Um, well, I think we still have a, a, a lot of amazing magazines. Uh, I mean, there's new in chess, there's, uh, there's chess live American chess magazine. And, and also, for example, in the German language, there are some good ones in, in, Sp in Spain. And I think that is still doing quite well. And, and, uh, amazing stories, uh, are still published there. So that's, that's really good. And, uh, on chess.com, I can say that we, uh, we have uh, more uh, authors also because I'm doing uh, less than I used to. We, I think we now have maybe six or seven authors uh, who are alternating and doing a lot of news, and, and that's great. I'm, I'm glad that there is also uh, women uh, among our authors uh, writing, and I think we also have more, more coverage of women's chess than before. So that is, I think that, it's, that is something very good. Yeah. Uh, and to be honest, I also see more like normal chess coverage in mainstream media than, than ever before, because for many, many years it was... It always was connected to some scandal, some cheating scandal, or, or uh, before or something else. Uh, but now you also see uh, stories like the mittens thing on our side, or the Champions Chess Tour <laughs> results on CNN. And uh, actually, today I got contacted by a journalist for a major Dutch national newspaper who is planning to write a preview article about the Women's World Championship uh, that is coming up in China. So I was really pleasantly surprised that they were going to do that. So yeah, I think that's, that's a very good sign. Yeah. And yeah, if you ask about like maybe problem problematic things. Sure. Um, yeah. 
Um, yeah, well, well, of course, also with the merch of 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 Chesscom and 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 Chess Twenty Four, um, and I think yeah, there's a lot happening on our side, and I think Chess Base uh, is has become a little bit less uh, relevant, uh, although they still do a lot of good stuff, but. Uh, you do see that online uh, the chess journalism is very concentrated and uh, there's it would to be honest I think it would be good if there was one or two other websites doing uh, doing some serious stuff um, but but uh, yeah I, I can I can only uh, applaud my team for for the work they're doing but I think uh, for the chess world it would be healthy if there's some extra uh, some new maybe websites that that would come with uh, with stories. And yeah. um yeah well also I I think there is also a little room for like as I mentioned before like quality journalism research journalism mm. uh where you really have to dig into things uh I used to I used to criticize uh, the Kirsan Ilyunjinov uh, Fide regime a lot and I spent a lot of time on that and a lot of articles uh, I think uh, Arkady Dvorkovic and his team are doing a better job. Uh, but of course, since the war in Ukraine uh, uh, broke out, uh, things have become a bit questionable on Fidesz side as well. And my time these days is limited. And I think um, it's it's tough to to do very good writing about that because it takes a lot of time and a lot of good research. You need to speak to a lot of people. You need to th- get your facts uh, uh, straight uh, before you can go into those very top- tricky uh, topics. Um, so I don't think anyone is to blame, but I think it would, it, yeah, it would be good if, if there was more budget and more time for some people uh, to, um, to be able to, to do that kind of journalism in chess a bit more. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point about um, having more research journalism. Although, like you said, I understand why that's that's less common. You, you said that um, you're happy to see uh, chess appear more often in mainstream media, and that is definitely mm-hmm. great news. I would just assume I've seen some of it myself. That by and large, it's you know it's more uh, written for a general audience than you know we're used to as chess fans. Mm-hmm. So you know I, I always give them some slack for that because it's it's written for a different. Uh, a broader audience, I'll say. Um, but that said, how do you feel the quality of journalism is when it covers chess in mainstream media? Do you feel like they're generally doing a pretty good job or do you feel like there's something they could improve on? No, I, I think it's getting, uh, it's definitely getting better. Um, I think you would, in the older days, uh, you would uh, see, see uh, yeah, some, some strange uh, mistakes uh, happening uh, like we're even in player names and that kind of stuff or just having the facts uh, wrong and i think that is i think that is uh, much less these days and the actual uh, actual uh, articles are um, are getting clearly better and uh yeah I'm, while i'm saying this i'm um quickly googling something because uh for example i've been quite impressed by um ESPN uh, India's coverage uh, of chess. They have one or two writers who are really uh, doing some uh, some very good articles. So, um, but um, no, in general, I think it's, it's, it, they're doing better and they're doing more, and that's only uh, only only great for for the sport. So, uh, onto your your career in its uh, its current form right now. Recently, you've scaled back some of your journalism work to focus on writing a new book. I know the book you told me is still taking shape, but uh, what can you share right now about the book that you're writing? Right. Yeah. It's actually my first. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I was often asked, why don't you write a book? My answer was always like, well, I, what, would it, what do I have to add to what I'm already writing? I don't think I should write a book just to write a book. But uh, yeah, somebody... Somebody approached me in uh, in the fall of 2022 and uh, came up with some ideas and uh, and and I finally realized that that uh, I had a actual good theme uh, to work on, uh, which is sort of like how chess uh, the the incredible changes the game has has gone through uh, in recent decades. That is, well, I think it's one of the things that I'm working on. Uh, I'm hoping to do even more than that, but in general. 
I would like to write a book for like a, a wide audience. So maybe even something that could be interested for people who don't even know the rules. Uh, but they might be interested and fascinated about the, the sport uh, and the world behind it. Uh, they've, they've probably heard about some of the, of the players or uh, they read about it in the newspaper and they might want to know more. So I want to ha- give a very nice sort of introduction or description, uh, not of the game, but, but, but of our world and our sport. And, and I think it's a fascinating subculture and, and I think it's, uh, yeah, I think, uh, many people, uh, can be, uh, can be interested in, uh, and, and it should be told. And m- many of the great stories that we have, I think should be told, uh, to, to new people as well. So that's what I'm, uh, I'm doing. And I'm, I'm, I'm also speaking to a lot of people. I'm, I'm actually traveling a little bit more this year. And I'm, uh, I just came back two days ago from Norway chess, for example, where I, spoke with some people uh, like the father and the trainer of Magnus and I I'm also met with like Judith Polgar and Maurice Ashley and I'm planning to talk to them later so I also hope to bring a lot of uh, voices from the chess world uh, mm. into it yeah but that's amazing that's about it yeah yeah so you know my head I kind of think of it in I just kind of in my mind I divided it into two categories as you talked about the the evolution of chess um, one would be you know a lot of what you focus on in your career which is at the professional level the evolution of the sport at the top level let's say and the other is more cultural chess cultural uh, as you said um, maybe at the amateur club level the you know just the enthusiasts who do it in their free time and how the game has changed for them in their experiences do you see yourself focusing on one side of that versus the other more or you want to just cover both um I, I i do think i can i can also uh include a bit about the amateur part of of the chess world uh and um if only because then i can include a little bit about my own uh chess career in it and my own experiences and um it is fascinating to see that things that are happening at the top where where focus on opening preparation is is uh is has reached insane uh, levels uh <laughs> Uh, that it actually happens at the amateur level as well, because if you go to chess tournaments these days, that uh, especially younger players in their teens or twenties, uh, they are uh, and helped a lot of them helped by chessable. They have such an incredible opening preparation. Yeah. Um, so you see it kind of drip down and uh, to all the levels, and um, it's uh, it's fascinating to see uh, how uh, how things are changing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, I really look forward to that book, Peter. It sounds fascinating to get that perspective of the evolution of the sport over the years and getting insights and input from other top players that you mentioned. That sounds really fascinating. I look forward to that. Do you have any, uh, I don't want to pressure you, but do you have any timeline for when the book might be released? Is this something we can look forward to, you know, maybe by next year or do you see it being a longer process? Yeah, I, I, I when I started at the, uh, at the end of 2022, I was telling myself, I hope I can finish by the end of 2023 but uh that's already uh, gonna be hard <laughs> be hard i'm afraid yeah. um so somewhere somewhere spring 2024 i hope to to finish the draft perhaps and then uh, of course it takes many more months to actually see it uh, appearing in uh, in in bookstores so um but it's a it's a great uh, process and uh, i hope I think I will get there. I think I will manage yeah. to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, hopefully it comes out uh, just as, a, as a, someone who's interested in the book. I, I hope to see it sooner than later. Um, but I'm excited for, uh, for its release whenever that, that day is. Just uh, one other kind of bigger topic I wanted to discuss with you. You mentioned to me that you've had some observations about the evolution of chess learning uh, over the years. And this kind of flows from what we were just talking about with chess openings and things like that, I think. This is definitely going to be of interest to my adult improver audience. So what insights have you had lately on the subject of the evolution of chess learning? Um, well, as everyone knows, the tools available now uh, are, are just incredible. And uh, you can still learn a bit old school uh, by buying books. You can now also read them uh, online and in apps. Uh, and uh, and so the material is is very easy to access these days. Um, but I think it's very easy to also get flooded by the information. And um, what I 
actually liked a lot myself from a recent book that I learned uh, read. Uh, it's um, I think it's called How to Study Chess on Your Own, something like that. Uh, yeah. the, the author is Davorin Kolyasevich, um, because he actually g- gives tips on how to study instead of uh, just giving you position. Oh, he does give you positions as well, but it's about making a study plan and and sticking to it and. Uh, that I think is very useful for uh, for all the imp- uh, improving players. And the other big thing I just want to say is I think the most important thing to get better is to make a commitment and to spend a serious amount of time on it again uh, for at least a couple of months in a row. And I think uh, especially forcing yourself to do uh, a bunch of puzzles every day and, and a bunch of calculation positions that's not the same you know just positions put on the chessboard and stuff that you have to really think about for like 10 minutes and emulate an actual game and and then really try to uh, find solutions uh, to those puzzles or or positions and and also try to write down if you notice uh, um, mistake common mistakes that you keep on making I think that is uh, still the best way to get back into shape and to maybe even improve a little bit. I did it, and I uh, played a good tournament in January in Waikanzea. I actually played there. I, uh, I had a good score. I didn't lose a single game, and I, I was playing on a 2200 level again, like my old days. So I was really happy, and I, I definitely think it was because of the training that I did in the second half of uh, of the year. So... Um, Actually, since then, I haven't spent a single moment on my own chess game again. So my interest in studying is also really uh, going up and down. And it's a bit of a pity because I was actually just starting a good uh, thing and uh, I was in a flow. But yeah, now I'm focusing on the book again. And uh, well, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, well, I think that's kind of um, I don't know. It's common, I think, for a lot of adults. You know, yes. there's there's these ups and downs in your improvement journey, and um, in your motivation also. I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good point. Good point. So, uh, yeah, thanks for those insights. I like them. Um, so, there's probably very few top players that, <laughs> if, if any, like, you know, that that people know um, that are in, you know, are like in the chess celebrity category that. Um, you haven't interviewed in your career over mm-hmm. the, over the years. So I'm curious about if you could interview one great chess player from the past who wasn't alive when you began your career and you know therefore you never got the chance to interview them, who would it be and and why? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, it's a tough one. There's so much to choose. Yeah, and it's hard to pick just one. I think I think I've heard that Bent Larsen was a very interesting character uh, who had a lot to say about things uh, away from the chessboard as well. I think he was very well read and uh, and could talk about anything, about politics, about literature and art. I think that would be an absolutely fascinating personality. Um, it's funny that I'm choosing someone to interview, <laughs> not because of the chess, but I guess that's uh, well, yeah, no, how I mean, it that's- goes. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. I mean, it's kind of what I was curious about because, I mean, obviously, you know, world champions of the past are really like top candidates but for, for this. But, yeah, it was also partially a question about, like, who you think would be an interesting interview. Yeah, exactly. So that makes sense that you picked uh, Ben Larson, yeah. Although, actually, uh, I will give you a second name, and that is, I think, uh, Paul Morphy. Hmm. Simply because he's such a... Uh, riddle uh, enigma of, the, of of chess history he was such an incredible talent and i would just love to to learn more from him about how he became clearly the best player uh, of his time and how much of that was talent how much did he play back in the states uh, before he got so good uh, what, what what did he read anything from what was available did he know about philidor for example all that kind of stuff he must have of course but uh, if he knew uh, the, the, the games, the games from the European top players, uh, or, or did he study those, or didn't he? There's so much to ask Paul Murphy that, uh, yeah, that would also be a great one. Yeah, that's an excellent choice. I like that a lot. I would love to see an interview with him uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, if that were possible. Uh, yeah, I forgot to mention that I've, we've entered into sort of my uh, fun, lighthearted uh, questions uh, part mm-hmm, of the interview, yeah. uh, the end of it. Um, so if you had to choose a career other than chess, what would it be? 
Okay. Um, well, now that I'm sitting here, I'm looking at my dust gathering guitars, mm. which I haven't played, uh, and I, I am not a. I'm just a, like an 1100 rated uh, guitar player, but and I haven't played on them for many many months. So, but I guess a guitar player in a rock band would be nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I definitely uh, uh, understand that. I'm a huge music fan myself. I love guitar, I love rock. So that's uh, that's a that's an answer I can definitely get behind. Uh, although I'm even worse than you uh, at guitar, I am definitely lower than an 1100 equivalent at guitar. Okay, so. Maybe I'm actually <laughs> also lower than that, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and just my last question for you, Peter, uh, as we wrap up, um, which of the elite chess players that you've met have you just personally connected with the most? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I I really closely connected with anyone in terms of that players became like real friends, but there are some players that I just always love to see because they're just so nice as as a person, as a human beings. Uh, I was happy to see two of them actually uh, like about a month ago when I visited the uh, Sigemann, Tepe Sigemann uh, tournament in Malmö, Sweden. Uh, those are uh, Boris Galfand and Peter Spittler. They're just uh, great guys. And uh, I guess with Boris there's even a bigger connection because he's Actually, also a big fan of Dutch uh, football or soccer, as you call it in the U.S. Uh, he he loves uh, the, the Dutch national team. He lo- he he loves uh, Johan Cruyff's uh, influence on Barcelona and all that. So uh, there's always a good uh, talking uh, talking points uh, with him. Uh, yeah, so I would name this. But yeah, and to be honest, a third player who was also in that tournament, he's also absolutely great and always in a great mood and and always uh, nice to be with. And that is uh, Niels Grandelius. Sweden's uh, grandmaster Niels Grandelius. He's also just very nice. Oh, that's fantastic. That's great. Peter, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, taking the time to do an interview with me. You're welcome. Uh, yeah, you've had yeah. such an amazing career. It was exciting to to hear about it and how it all unfolded and um, your insights, your stories, all fantastic. So thank you very much for that. No, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of my business, Adult Chess Academy. And that has a website with the same name if you want to look for it. You can also find me being way too active on Twitter by searching my username, Lona underscore chess. See you next week.